This spring, if you'd rather spend time enjoying your lawn instead of trying to keep it alive, there's good news. True Green is the easiest and most affordable way to get a beautiful lawn. All you have to do is water and mow, and they'll do the rest. Weed control, fertilization, aeration, and even some things you might not even think of. They'll do all of it, while you can do literally anything else. With True Green, you can have your lawn looking as good as a putting green. That's not hyperbole. True Green is the official lawn care treatment provider of the PGA Tour. True Green offers a satisfaction guarantee, and they have a verified best price promise, which guarantees you the lowest price with no compromise on quality. You do you. Let True Green do your lawn care. Visit TrueGreen.com to get the best lawn at the best price with the best people guaranteed. Worried about letting someone else pick out the perfect avocado for your perfect impress them on the third date guacamole? Well, good thing Instacart shoppers are as picky as you are. They find ripe avocados like it's their guac on the line. They are milk expiration date detectives. They bag eggs like the 12 precious pieces of cargo they are. So let Instacart shoppers overthink your groceries so that you can overthink what you'll wear on that third date. Download the Instacart app today to get free delivery on your first three orders, while supplies last. Minimum $10 per order. Additional terms apply. This is Intelligence Matters with former acting director of the CIA, Michael Morell. Brought to you by Lockheed Martin. Your mission is ours. One of the things that I often think about is, wow, you know, in 1979, when my mother was trying to bring my younger mother and me here to this country, if the mere fact that someone had carried out a terrorist act in my homeland meant that my whole religion was branded or meant that my country was somehow put on a visa ban or a travel ban list, I wouldn't have come here. And so this redefinition of what America is, um, I think, will do all of us a great, a great disservice if it persists. You become a member of President Obama's national security team. What was it like for an idealist to walk into what is typically a very pragmatic environment? Well, I think the biggest challenge is to break down a sense that there's that dichotomy. There are, at times, trade-offs, right, between the need to confront a terrorist threat that is brewing and, you know, the recognition that the more that a government that we are partnering with is abusing human rights, the more likely they are fueling long-term threats. But yet, that doesn't necessarily help you on the Monday that you have to make the decision about whether to partner with that military. And so I don't want to pretend that those trade-offs weren't real or that they didn't confront me. I certainly knew that they were coming. And I found it hard to get that sort of long-term recognition of the integration to, to break through that more ingrained sense that, that human rights are a luxury. They're not a luxury. You know, the, the, the promotion of human rights, even if it's incremental, over time is going to be indispensable to the, to the more stable world that we seek and that we need. Ambassador Samantha Power was the permanent representative to the United Nations, serving in that role from 2013 to 2017. Prior to that position, Samantha served on President Obama's National Security Council staff. Today, she is a professor of global leadership and public policy at Harvard Kennedy School and professor of human rights at Harvard Law School. Samantha, a few months ago, published her memoir, The Education of an Idealist, 
Samantha and I just sat down to talk about her memoir and how she thinks about the world in which we live today. We'll be right back with that discussion after a word from our exclusive sponsor, Lockheed Martin. I'm Michael Morrell, and this is Intelligence Matters. Man, that sunset is gorgeous. Grill, patio, sunset. Hard to get better than that. Unless you're browsing Carvana's inventory while you soak it all in. Oh, burger time. So sit back, get comfortable. Carvana's got thousands of cars under $20,000 just waiting for you. I could stay here forever. Carvana, where car buying meets comfort meets convenience. Download the app or visit Carvana.com today. Samantha, welcome to Intelligence Matters. I'm very glad you could join us. Thank you, Mike. You know, when we served together in the Obama administration, Samantha, I found you to be a remarkable person, authentic, principled, passionate, honest, reflective, and I could actually go on and on. And now that I've read your book, I know why. Oh. Your book, The Education of an Idealist, is not only all of those adjectives that I just mentioned, but it's also extraordinarily well-written. It's, it's lyrical. The words grab you and they don't let you go. It's tough to put down. So all of that to say congratulations, and I really hope my listeners go to the bookstore or go online and buy it and read it because it really is a remarkable book. Thank you so much, Michael. That means the world to me. Thank you. Samantha, maybe the place to start is to ask you to define what you mean by an idealist in the context of the book, in the context of yourself. I think my definition is pretty broad. Um, First, let me say what it doesn't mean. I think it doesn't mean looking at the world through rose-colored glasses. It doesn't mean utopianism uh, or believing that there is some absolute perfection available to us given that we are mere mortals and humans. Uh, But what it does mean is that um, the world is in need of repair and reform and improvement and that in order for any of that improvement to occur, human beings who are part of the world need to show agency and take risks and make themselves vulnerable, vulnerable to failure uh, for starters in order to try to bring about the improvements that we we know are needed, less cruelty, more decency and kindness. And so it's really a combination of just not being that happy with the world as it is and then taking that second step of believing that there's something we can do about it. And would would you say, and I assume the answer is yes, but would you say that that's always the condition, that the world can always be made a better place and you never get to some endpoint where you can stop? I think that it's hard to imagine a world of equal education for all and, um, you know, uh, uh, an end of hate and intolerance or an end of injustice. I mean, you know, I think it's our lodestar. It's our – it should be – our compass should take us in that direction. So we should never sort of lose sight of what – equality and and sort of full respect for people's rights and peace on earth, you know, what that would look like. But I guess I start 
um, you know, as somebody who who started my life in Ireland, you know, where the troubles were roiling the country and there was great sectarian division. I then later in life was a war correspondent, so I saw kind of carnage and and the perpetration of atrocities up close. So I start with a, a kind of set of dark assumptions, I think, about you know, kind of the uh, the the inability to perfect the human condition. But I definitely, alongside seeing um, some pretty unappealing things, I've seen so much good done, so many people standing up for what they believe in and making a difference that I think that's kind of the the space I inhabit is the is more as Obama, I think, began to say toward the end of his presidency, better is good mm-hmm. and, and better is often a hell of a lot harder than worse. Right. Um, and so I guess I'm I'm dedicated to not making the best the enemy of the good. So as an idealist, Samantha, do you do you feel lonely today? And 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 maybe another way of putting that is how do you assess the state of idealism today? You know, because the term is so fungible and means a lot of things to a lot of people, um, you know, I want to want to just stipulate that I think many, many people who go into public service who aren't human rights lawyers like me or aren't motivated principally by humanitarian issues might be motivated by um, more traditional conceptions of U.S. national security, you know, preventing nuclear proliferation. I believe individuals like that, soldiers who serve our country abroad, um, our diplomats who represent us and and with our soldiers are trying to keep our country safe, our intelligence officers, I think they're all idealists. They're all trying to enhance U.S. security, look out for the welfare of the American people. And so there are a lot of idealists still serving uh, in our institutions whether our domestic agencies or uh, those institutions that are dedicated to promoting our security. Um, And then there are a community, a growing community of people outside uh, government who are activating like never before in response to Mm -hmm. what they see as very serious slippage in terms of our values and our ideals. And so whether it's people fighting within to maintain an integrity to our national security process, or as we've seen in the whole um, Ukraine military assistance scandal, um, you know, individuals who believe that standing up to Russian aggression remains in our interests, believe that, you know, following the law and the legislation that Congress passed uh, is uh, is what is required by, by being a public servant, whether it's those individuals or crack journalists on the outside, people who have now just in recent days decide they're going to run for office for the first time um, because they don't like what they see, whether in Washington or in their local communities. Um, you know, I think that there's been a really healthy uh, counter reaction to the perception that our, you know, the elected leaders uh, are not delivering the kind of integrity or sense of purpose and principle uh, that a lot of Americans, I think, pine for. So I guess the shorter answer to your question, Michael, is I feel conflicted. I feel, you know, kind of crushed on a daily basis by some of the policies that are being pursued, wasting four years on an issue as 
dangerous as climate change, Mm -hmm. blowing up the Iran nuclear deal without any conception of how you're going to replace it, you know, believing in a lot of places in punishment for punishment's sake rather than any kind of theory of the case as to how you're going to actually advance uh, our security, um, betraying people who fought alongside our servicemen and women um, in northern Syria in order to end the ISIS caliphate, walking away from those partnerships and, and the la- both the cruelty of that and the coldness of that, but also the lasting legacy of that for our foreign policy and our ability to make such partnerships in the future. All of that is terribly dispiriting. But then you just see so many people standing up and just saying, this is not the way it should be. And and sometimes it takes a crisis to draw people into the enterprise of governance and of politics and of service. And maybe that's the moment we're in. I think the verdict is out as to which of these forces are, are going to prevail. But but I must say that the pride that I felt and also the the sort of gratification I felt seeing intelligence officials, civil servants, foreign service officers, um, you know, testifying under oath, telling the truth, speaking up for a set of values and principles that I had thought until recently were enduring and I I do believe will be seen to be enduring uh, over time, but also imagining all those faceless individuals who who weren't testifying, but but how they felt to see themselves and their community and the integrity of the, the enterprise embodied in those individuals who 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 now have become more known for you know, known in ways they never right. wanted to be known. Right. Um, so I think that also offers you know the American public a glimpse into the world that you know so well that I had a taste of for just eight years, but uh, became so impressed by. And and the more exposures we give, again, I keep using the word integrity, but to the, uh, without sounding corny, the kind of purity of conceptions of service, I think, that, that motivate people every day. I think the more we lift the veil on that, that's why I wrote the book in the way that I did. I think that's the way, why you wrote your book, is to open up that world and make it attractive, make right. it not just the sum of the, of the sound Draw bites others that are... To it. That are that are, yeah, and, and draw people into that cause. So, Samantha, maybe we can get to the education piece of the idealist in question here, which is you. And maybe I ask you two questions about that. And the first is your mom and her story and how that impacted you. My mother grew up in County Cork in Ireland, one of five sisters. Um, she grew up wanting to do two things. Uh, number one, one day become a medical doctor. She always just knew that that's what she wanted in her heart of hearts. And the other thing she wanted to do pretty much every day of her life to this day, she's now 76, is hit a ball, some kind of ball, whether it was a tennis ball, a golf ball, a squash ball, a racquetball, a field hockey uh, ball. She was an amazing athlete. And she grew up in this family and was deterred. She was the first a uh, member of her, a female member of her family. She had a brother as well. Who, she was the first to go to college. Um, and when she went to college, again, she wanted to be a doctor. But her own sister said that's so self-indulgent. It'll cost so much money. This that. So she was deterred, and it was probably the only time in her life that I know of anyway where someone was able to talk her out of something she wanted. So she went and got a basic science degree, 
went on to get a PhD in biochemistry in London. She had to leave Ireland really to be able to do that because girls, young women, weren't really encouraged in the sciences in those days. And she still just wanted to be a doctor. And and so in what was then uh, a later stage of life, you know, in her mid-20s, uh, sounds like a kid to me, but uh, she went back to medical school and ended up becoming an MD to this day, uh, is a kidney doctor at Mount Sinai in New York. She married my father, gave birth to me, um, and somehow managed the juggle of doing finishing her PhD, her, the dissertation part of her PhD, and attending classes for medical school, and being uh, the top squash player in Ireland, uh, and continuing to play field hockey. She's an amazing juggler. But her marriage to my dad um, frayed. He was a big drinker, and he began, I think, almost to live vicariously through her achievements, mm-hmm. and he began to spend more and more time in the pub. Tensions uh, intensified, and eventually she decided she wanted to split with him and be with another Irishman, a doctor, also a kidney doctor. And in Ireland in those days, Michael, there was no divorce. Mm-hmm. It's a relatively recent um, addition to the to the law books. And she didn't really have an option for being with the man she wanted to be with, leaving my dad, separating in a kind of clean way. So she decided to emigrate to America and fought within the Irish court system at a time where the Catholic Church was supreme, super influential. Amazingly, partly because of my dad's drinking, she won custody of my brother and me to bring us to America um, under the terms by which I would continue to be raised as a good Irish Catholic. I would be homeschooled in Irish, um, which she would have to do, Mm. not her favorite. Uh, And thirdly, of course, that I would go and see my dad uh, during all of the holidays. But to imagine her kind of setting off on that airplane in 1979, I was nine, my younger brother was five, the responsibility she must have felt, the rupture in, in, again, a family, a Catholic family, to be making a break like that, the guilt, which Catholics do very well. Um, and then the – but also the sense of adventure, I suppose, in, in you know, starting this new life with this new person who has been in my life ever since, uh, Eddie Burke, my stepfather. Um, she's an amazing woman, a real trailblazer and and always left in me the sense that – if you can dream it, you should at least try to do it. It doesn't mean it'll work, um, but put yourself out there. And if you put yourself out there enough times, good things will happen. So, Samantha, you're an immigrant. And so what what's going on in our country with regard to how we view immigrants must have special meaning for you? It does. Um, you know, as an Irish immigrant, I have been extremely fortunate I experienced as a kid nothing other than a warm welcome in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania initially, and then I went to high school in Atlanta, Georgia. The climate that immigrants and refugees are being greeted with today, depending, I think, on their religion or where they come from, is totally different than what I experienced. But... I think the, one of the things that I often think about is, wow, you know, if in 1979 when my mother was trying to bring my younger mother and me here to this country, if the mere fact that someone had carried out a terrorist act in my homeland meant that my whole religion 
was branded or meant that my country was somehow put on a, uh, a visa ban or a travel ban list, I wouldn't have come here. Right. You know, if we practiced collective guilt or guilt by association in that way where we lump individuals together on the basis of some immutable characteristic that they can't control, um, you know, that would have abetted all kinds of injustice and it would have deprived this country of many individuals who've made tremendous contributions uh, to the sciences, to our communities, to, you know, even our our athletic fields, um, you know, have been sprinkled with, with people who've come from, from all over the world. Yeah. yeah. Um, yeah. People used to say the San Antonio Spurs were like the United Nations <laughs> of NBA teams, for example. But, you know, whatever uh, field you, you consider. And, and of course, as you know, Michael, the national security community, and as we saw even uh, as these officials in these recent days were testifying uh, on the Ukraine matter, Fiona Hill from from Scotland, Masha Yovanovitch, an immigrant, Lieutenant Colonel Vinman, an immigrant. Mm-hmm. I mean, these these people who their their first way for at the first occasion they have to pay back their country, they they choose to go into into public service. We just see that throughout um, again throughout the the infrastructure. Uh, of our of our country, whether at the local, state, or federal level, and so it's heartbreaking, and it's it's completely counterproductive from the standpoint of um, you know again our communities, our economies. I not far from where I grew up in Georgia, there's a town, Clarkston, which when I lived in Atlanta, I never would have dreamed. Uh, would become known as the Ellis Island of the South. Um, it's a little town that has been completely rejuvenated by immigration and very specifically by the inflow of refugees. I think 40 languages are now spoken in Little uh-huh. Clarkston, Georgia. And, you know, that community is at the forefront, as is Buffalo, New York, and, and other places that have, you know, had not been doing well, really, um, in recent years economically, but now have come to rely on this this influx of of energy and innovation. You know, think about particularly refugees, what it means to be a refugee, what it took for any refugee to make their way to the United States. I mean, the resilience, right. the determination, the drive. This is why, um, you know, the CEO of Chobani, who's himself an immigrant, a Turkish immigrant, um, he very early on as part of his business model, he realized that if he could find immigrants and refugees in the community, and this wasn't charity from his standpoint, he just saw how they worked (laughs) on the assembly lines and in the, you know, in the boardroom, just the, the, again, the energy often motivated not only by the desire to, to feed their, their young families and to, and to provide for their immediate families here in the United States who might've come with them, but often, tending to the needs of dozens of members of their extended family back home in refugee camps or who are struggling elsewhere to make ends meet. And so this redefinition of what America is, um, I think, will do all of us a great a great disservice if it persists. We're going to take a quick break to hear from our sponsor, then we'll be right back with more of our discussion with Samantha Power. Okay, picture this. It's Friday afternoon when a thought hits you. I can spend another weekend doing the same old whatever, or I can hop into my all-new Hyundai Santa Fe and hit the road. 
With available H-Track all-wheel drive and three-row seating, my whole family can head deep into the wild. Conquer the weekend in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. Samantha, the, the second piece of the education that I'd love for you to talk about, and you mentioned it once already, is your time as a journalist uh, reporting from places like Bosnia, East Timor, Kosovo, Rwanda, Sudan, all of the vacation spots, right? <laughs> um, how did those assignments impact you? I think they left me with a bias toward getting close, um, you know, getting out there to talk to individuals who've been affected by conflict or who've been affected by foreign policy choices that are made, um, you know, in dark windowless rooms uh, 3,000 miles away or 5,000 miles away, just um, – to really think in terms of the human effects of decision-making. I think also by virtue of being a journalist, early on I began to ask myself the question, am I doing a good enough job bridging the gaps, you know, bridging the distances between the people I'm interviewing, let's say somebody who survived, um, you know, a, a rape camp or somebody who is living under occupation, um, you know, as, as I hear their experiences, am I doing a good enough job remembering that if they're lucky, you know, my readers will not have had experiences like this? So, so what is it that the individuals that I'm interviewing and whose travails I'm myself reacting, you know, uh, very strongly to and, and, and feel are very powerful to, to, to hear Am I conveying their experiences in a manner to which other people with very, very different life backgrounds and experiences are going to be able to relate? And if I'm not, I better go back to the drawing board because it's the universals, uh, you know, that are that are going to to pull us together, that are going to trigger empathy and maybe even action. And so that task, you know, and I, when I look back at our years. In the Obama administration, I think I asked myself, you know, could I have done more of that of that bridging? I mean, some of what we were doing that I think was doing significant good in the world was was is not to this day really all that well understood. Um, and I think the question of how you bridge different worlds, you know, again as a war correspondent, it was a, a world of war with a right. with a, a more peaceful world, but. But in general, as we seek to to create an enduring or to grow, let's say, an enduring constituency for U.S. leadership in the world or for international engagement, um, it, we really need to find a way to translate what you and I may know to be in our interests or in the common good, but which may not look like that way to, to somebody who's focused on their next paycheck or uh, you know whether their health insurance premium is going to go up. And so – so I think at least an atten intentionality and attention to that those large, large gaps in life experiences that can make translation challenging. I think that's something I'm left with as well. So Samantha, you you become a member of President Obama's national security team, uh, a senior director on the National Security Council staff. I mean, what what was it like for an idealist to walk? 
into what is typically a very pragmatic environment? Well, I think the biggest challenge is to break down a sense that there's that dichotomy. And I don't know that I succeeded on a good day. I Maybe every now and then I'd have a good day and would succeed. But, you know, I think there's no question, as you and I both experienced, that there are at times trade-offs, right, between, for example, uh, the need to confront uh, a terrorist threat that is brewing and you know, the recognition that the more that a, a, a government that we are partnering with is abusing human rights, the more likely they are fueling long-term threats and even long-term extremism. Sure. And, and so there's – but yet that doesn't necessarily help you on the Monday that you have to make the decision about whether to partner with that military. And so I don't want to pretend that those trade-offs weren't real or that they didn't confront me. I certainly knew that they were coming. But I think the you know the the what I the point that I would just come back to again and again was the linkage and and I do think that this is something that President Obama agreed with and that the people he chose around him by and large embraced even if it was often in a crisis situation sometimes hard to bring to the fore but you know you don't just respond to an Ebola epidemic in West Africa because you don't want to see three countries in West Africa suffering unimaginable pain uh, and the loss of hundreds of thousands of people. You definitely don't want that. But you also lead a coalition um, and get you know, dozens and dozens of countries at the UN to be part of that coalition to tend to that crisis because you don't want Ebola getting on an airplane right. and coming into American cities or European cities. And you don't just push the Iraqi government to be more inclusive and to not, in the wake of, you know, again, the the, the previous uh, regime change and the end of Saddam Hussein's regime, there was a, a major effort uh, to debathify, to get rid of individuals who've been part of that regime. And it ended up sweeping up many, many uh, millions, really, of Sunni citizens where they, too, felt disenfranchised and discriminated against um, in, in part, again, after years and years of resentment of, of, by Shia feeling as if they never uh, had a chance and had suffered unimaginable repression. But you don't engage the Iraqi government about the need to be more inclusive because it's like in just in the Universal Declaration of Human Rights or because it's a nice way to be. You do it because you recognize that exclusionary governance is inherently destabilizing. And we certainly now, Michael, I think you'd agree, we look back and see the rise of ISIS as very linked Absolutely. to uh, Iraqi governance Absolutely. and the human rights abuses carried out. And certainly we knew at the time the Syrian atrocities and our inability to figure out how to mitigate them. And so, you know, what I'm what I'm saying is kind of conventional wisdom in a, at, at an abstract level, but but it's hard in those meetings, and I found it hard to get that sort of long-term recognition of the integration to to break through that more ingrained sense that that human rights are a luxury. They're not a luxury. You know, the 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 promotion of human rights, even if it's incremental over time, is going to be indispensable to the to the more stable world that we seek and that we need. Samantha. I want to ask you a question that I bet you you have not been asked on your book tour. 
CIA is not particularly popular with the human rights crowd for some good historical reasons, I think. And I'm kind of interested in what your view of the CIA was going in to government and what your view of it coming out. Hmm. I, it's hard to flash back to my to my pre-government self. I guess I was a student of Cold War coups, covert operations. I was somebody who, while I was in college, uh, went back and read some of the really important reports from the 1970s, the Church Committee report, and you know the kind of after action um, of operations that you know went too far. Um, uh, assassination operations and from their moment you know, of conception went too far. From the moment of conception, exactly. Although my, you know, not being um, in any way a, a scholar of the intelligence community, my emphasis would have been on you know some of what happened in Latin America and so forth, and so would have would have known that history. I think also then remember when we we the Obama political appointees came in in early two thousand nine. It was in the wake of um, black sites and rendition, and so all of that was, you know, I suppose very much would have colored my understanding of what the CIA was doing. Then you come into government. I think the most um, one of the most amazing perks of being in the positions that I was in first as the president's human rights and multilateral affairs advisor, and then as UN ambassador, was my my briefer. With just having a briefer, uh, whether it was a daily briefer or a weakling briefer, and just for your listeners who may never have this incredible experience, is just somebody who tries to curate all of what we know about what is happening pretty much everywhere in the world, um, gleaned from you know our intelligence sources, gleaned from open sources, gleaned from all of our intelligence agencies and, and the various ways in which they collect. And then you have... Uh, an individual who I assume is him or herself representing a team of individuals who are just there to staff you and to try to help you basically develop the the latest understanding of conditions in countries that in many cases aren't making the newspaper, especially as foreign bureaus close, the importance of our uh, intelligence community gets you know, is is even is even greater. You don't even have news sources in so many parts of the world now, at least that you you feel you can trust. And so that was my first experience: was who are these people? Why are they being so nice to me? <laughs> why are they? Why don't they have jobs to do? Why, why are they? You know, spending so much time thinking about me and what I'm interested in. And then you realize this this sense of team and this sense of higher purpose that I talked about earlier. And that your career, of course, embodied. Um, and what they are trying to do is to ensure that people who are in a position to make policy decisions have at their disposal the best possible situational awareness in order to inform those decisions. And, you know, I must say after the – all of the, the sort of after actions about the, the run-up to the invasion of Iraq, the – the intelligence community that I got to know was one that was hypersensitive about, you know, about avoiding policy judgments, putting a thumb on the scale in any way that would be seen to be political, um, you know, just a real 
kind and I don't know what it was like before because I wasn't in those rooms before, but just bending over backwards um, to just make sure that that what they were conveying was independent judgments about, you know, un, unmediated by a sense of what the boss wants to hear, right. uh, but really rooted in a belief that their job was to provide what the boss needed to hear, um, which are two very different things sometimes. And so it, uh, you know, and of course, President Obama, um, you know, moved to to redress many of the issues, not only in the CIA, but also in, in the military and elsewhere um, uh, that that had I had found very problematic on the outside. And so this, I became very, very dependent um, on this community of professionals and, um, and I'm left w- with a great respect for what goes on behind the curtain while also, um, and I think, you know, people like you and John Brennan and Jim Clapper and others that I worked with in the intelligence community probably have the same view. But, you know, we have learned painfully through our history how easy it is to slip and how important it is to have checks and balances on all of our institutions and 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 how really the rule of law and, and, and not a politicized conception of the rule of law or, uh, you know, a, a – a, a sort of fluctuating conception of the rule of law, but some some pretty hard and fast principles. You know that those principles are need to be the kind of ballast or the foundation uh, for the work that goes on on behalf of national security. Because when it's national security, especially the temptation, because the immediacy of threats is so real, and because the dedication to keeping our citizens safe is so consuming. I think it's precisely in those circumstances that those checks and balances and those constraints become all the more important. So, Samantha, maybe to to finish up here, let me ask you about two issues that occurred on President Obama's watch. One where I think we did put human rights, human dignity high on the agenda, and one where, quite frankly, I don't think we did. And And I'd love you to talk about these two from that perspective. The first one is Libya and the second one is Syria. How do you think about those two in the context of what we're talking about here? You know, I actually am not sure that I would embrace the premise in the sense that I – and maybe I'll just go in a roundabout way to, to answering your question and sort of come back to Libya. But on Syria, I don't think that one can say that it was – a sort of insufficient attention to human consequences that led us where we where we went or where we didn't go. <laughs> I, I, you know, my feeling, and I write about this in the book, is that Obama, if I had to guess, and this isn't something that he's confided in me, but if I had to guess, he probably had more sleepless nights right. about the Caesar photos. Not the Caesar photos, but the torture going on in Syrian prisons that the Caesar photos revealed, the chemical attacks, not just the high-profile chemical attack in August 2013, but other attacks, the the use of bunker-busting bombs, incendiary weapons. The I, I think nothing made him feel kind of less empowered in a funny way than Syria and and very specifically the 
the devastation being wrought on the ground. I think that's one reason you witnessed this. I'm sure that he was often very testy with me, <laughs> you know, on Syria when I would raise something that was happening. You know, he's kind of at one point, you know, it's we all read your book, Samantha, you right. know, like, right. like, like you don't have to remind me that this is a human catastrophe. And, and I, I really do think that that's something he carried with him and carries with him. I'm not saying that that's I'm not. I'm not using that as an alibi on you know for for policy, but I I don't think it was, it was that human rights kind of didn't matter enough. I think a combination of the invasion of Iraq and all that followed, the you know and the loss of faith, um, that even when you're maximizing your deployments, you know, putting hundreds of thousands of American lives at risk in pursuit of a policy goal in a, such a messy and sectarian neighborhood, you barely make a dent. And and remember, it wasn't just how badly the Iraq war went on a lot of different dimensions, but it's also the Syria crisis is, is happening and, and indeed helps fuel the growth of ISIS so at just the time we're managing Syria or Obama is seeking to manage Syria, U.S. forces are being pulled back into Iraq, having finally been withdrawn. And so there's just a sense of, oh, you know, we finally did in the end leave Iraq in a, in a stable enough place where we felt like we could draw our troops down and, and, and you know, that you could, you could make the case that there was a stability and there were elections and that people have the chance to build their own destiny and I think from the standpoint of the president, no, almost no sooner do you leave than, um, you know, another threat of cataclysmic proportions takes hold and U.S. forces are drawn back in. And just a sort of a sense that the tools that we had, whether the most robust version of the tool as you'd seen in Iraq or some of the kind of less robust tools, but that still would have required using military force in a, a very aggressive way, namely the kinds of things that I would have been recommending like a no-fly zone or civilian protected areas. None of those were without very substantial risk. Mm -hmm. And and so I think there is a difference between, you know, actually coming together and saying hundreds of thousands of people are, are dying. Team, present me with options for how I can fix this or how I can mitigate this seeing that you've done all the diplomatic, economic, and other things that you normally would do in such a circumstance, and unfortunately, largely because of Russia's veto on the Security Council, and thus the fact that none of those sanctions or diplomatic actions can, you know, are, are enforced comprehensively, right? They're coalitions of the willing economic sanctions, and so thus they don't have the kind of biting effect where they could have actually over time changed the Assad regime's calculus. He feels he's used every tool in the toolbox short of bombing the Assad regime and he comes to that precipice and says, I see the loss of life. I don't – I'm not convinced that if I do this, I'm going to mitigate the suffering and I do think that I will um, incur other risks, especially at a time when the American public – and the Congress and others want no part of this. I think that – so the calculus there I think was more along those lines. I would argue as you might remember, you know, that we need to do a better job not of comparing the current circumstance in Syria with the risk of a no-fly zone or whatever 
but rather we need to extrapolate what are the long-term costs of Syria. What right. is that going to mean right. against that risk? And then if we had internalized those longer-term consequences, maybe the cost-benefit calculus would have cut for him in another direction. But but again, he he wasn't when, – when I went at the UN to – on his – behest to build an international coalition to use military force in response, limited force in response to the chemical weapons attack of August 2013. You remember how many countries volunteered to be by our side. Two initially, the UK and France, and we were left with one after the UK uh, bailed. And you remember what happened with Congress when we went to Congress to see if they They supported too. Exactly. And so that's that. On, On Libya, there you you know that's a, a particularly challenging one to look back on retrospectively but you're absolutely right that there you know you hear a lot of conspiracy theories about oh obama went into libya because of the oil and it was only that that caught no you know do you, you remember those meetings right. i don't think anybody right. we, mentioned think, the oil i don't think oil ever came up i don't think it ever at least in any meeting i was in ever came up and and what you had was the world at least by 21st century standards united. You had a Security Council prepared to authorize a civilian protection mission. Russia knew full well what it was walking into. There's a lot of revisionism there as well where Putin is acting like he wasn't part of that choice. He was. You think Medvedev is going to do anything about Vladimir Putin's hall pass? Uh, not in this lifetime. And Russia was a part of it. The Arab League asked for it. Libya's own ambassador to the UN defected, turned to the member states of the UN and begged for the the lives of his countrymen to be elevated and for the Security Council to take the action that it took. So the challenge there is that the, the very Libyans who wanted help preventing Qaddafi from carrying out a large massacre in Benghazi and from you know reclaiming some of the other cities that were under opposition control – those same Libyans, after the Qaddafi regime was dislodged, didn't want any international security presence in Libya. They wanted to manage their affairs themselves. It was the first time they had – many of them had any occasion to be part of governing the country. And so, you know, there's a lot of talk of did we plan properly. You remember the, the planning processes. We had plan after plan. Somebody will FOIA, use the Freedom of Information Act to get a hold of all of our Libya plan. There were so many plans. But in the end, the Libyan authorities and even the Libyan factions, uh, really one of, the, one of the few things they all could agree on was no didn't international help. security help. Right. And, right. and so that's not an, an alibi again for us. The consequences – um, of Libya's implosion are being felt by Libyans, you know, by others in the region. It's immensely destabilizing today. But I don't – I personally don't look back and see a scenario once the revolution has started and the denial of human rights. This is another example of, of you know, we should learn from the Arab Spring that we, we have an interest in evolution and not revolution, right? That incremental change and reform and respect for human rights and, again – political governance that is inclusive, those are in America's interest. We we can all agree that, you know, upheavals of the kind that knock out institutions are 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 very, very uh, disruptive and dangerous. But when you deny people's rights for so long, revolution is often what follows. The author is Samantha Power. The book is The Education of an Idealist. Sam, thanks so much for being with us. Thank you, Michael. Take care. 
That was Samantha Power. I'm Michael Morell. Please join us next week for another episode of Intelligence Matters. This has been the Intelligence Matters podcast with former acting director of the CIA, Michael Morell. Brought to you by Lockheed Martin. Your mission is ours. The podcast is produced by Olivia Gassis, Jamie Benson, and Jake Rosen. If you haven't already, subscribe, rate, and review wherever you download podcasts. You can follow the show on Twitter at Intel Matters Pod and follow Michael at Michael J. Morell. Intelligence Matters is a production of CBS News Radio. Survivor's back and so is On Fire, the only official Survivor podcast. And we have a twist, a new co-host, the winner of Survivor 45, D. Valladaris. Hi! Listen to On Fire, the official Survivor podcast, wherever you get your podcasts.